Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. We're certainly happy to have you here with us today. We've got two fantastic guests today, Max and Dina Lynn Locato. Of course, you know Max Locato as author and speaker. He has over 145 million books in print. Podcaster, speaker. He's been married to Dina Lynn for 40 years. Want to celebrate that. He's got a golf handicap of 12. We'll have to talk about that uh, on the show here. But we're really happy to have them on today. Max has a brand new book called You Were Made for This Moment. We're going to get into that a bit. And before we get to the show, I want to let you in on something that uh, the family's making public. Max, after he was on the show, he had a significant health diagnosis, and that is an ascending aortic aneurysm. So we just wanted to let everyone know and make our listeners aware of that so you can keep them in your thoughts and prayers, keep the family lifted up. For those of you that are people of faith, be praying for the family, and I know that they would really appreciate that. So really happy to have them both on the show. We get into their numbers, what they might be. We talked to Max about a couple different possibilities. Dina Lynn identifies as a type nine. So uh, really great conversation. They are just sweethearts, man. And one is over in a heartbeat. Just fell in love with them. So happy to have them on the show. Happy you get to hear this interview. And that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. So without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Max and Dina Lynn Lucado, welcome to Typology. Thank you. It's a great privilege. It is. Well, it's a great privilege for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be an interesting show. Dina Lynn, you are a nine peacemaker on the Enneagram. And we have a little bit of uh, debate uh, around whether or not uh, Max is a three or a nine. He tested as a nine on my assessment, but yeah. you think he's a three. And we're gonna we'll we'll dive into that in in uh, in, in just a moment moment. So, how did you both learn about the enneagram? Our kids. Oh wow! They were they were talking about it, and I'm like, "What is this?" And so they were listening to podcasts. They told me about this book, and, <laughs> and so I start, I got the book. And I mean, I've always wondered who I am and why I am and what I am. And so I was real curious about it. He wasn't curious at all. And so um, I started reading the book and listening to podcasts. And the book is The Road Back to You, by the way, in case somebody's just getting audio. Right. (laughs) There you go, honey. Keep that that product placement going, friends. So I was really curious. It, it was at first I wasn't sure if I was a two or a nine, but mm-hmm. definitely the more I listened and read and watched myself, I was convinced I'm a nine. Right. Well, you know that twos and nines uh, are probably the most common mistype on the enneagram. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Because they because they present very very similarly. Uh, they're, they can, nines are very kind, supportive, warm people like twos are, um, one of the key differences 
differences is that twos are far more image conscious than nines. Huh. And the uh, merging thing kind of resonated with me. Mm-hmm, also, mm-hmm. I just know what a horrible procrastinator I am. And um, just when you told that story about your wife mm-hmm. and your mother coming over for dinner and mm-hmm. she left and, you know, stopped to talk <laughs> to a neighbor and help someone change a bicycle tire. I, I could just, I died laughing. I could see myself doing that very thing. Yeah. Right. Well, what's the first thing you said when you came in my office today? She said she I'm up at the church office. So she came up here, but she went out for a walk, an exercise walk like she does every day. But she ran into a friend. They stood on the side of the road and talked for 30 minutes. That happens every time. I would never. I know. I would. Man, my blinders would be on. And I'd be. He's very focused, yeah. very driven. He's an introvert. So. Mm-hmm. Maybe he doesn't present like a three sometimes, but um, mm. but there's not a procrastination cell in his body. He is a peacemaker, and mm. um, but in his work, I mean, I, I I get it when they say nines have dead projects, you know, all over the house because they got started but not finished, and mm-hmm. that is not in him at all. So that was my. Just a lot that doesn't yeah. to be right. But it's hard as a peacemaker. Mm-hmm. Max, but, why are you did, looking at her like that? You just gave her a look. I just wonder what that's about. Uh, I, just, I just love listening to her talk. <laughs> <laughs> I can talk. And, uh, I oh, yeah. Her. I love her. You know, we're about to celebrate 40 years of marriage. Oh, that's Oh, good. wow. August the 8th, 40 years. Yep. I tell her that Moses got the wilderness and she got me. <laughs> well, that's not true. <laughs> well, Dina, then you can you could uh, probably form a support group with my wife um, <laughs> because um, literally, I like to say that my wife's time continuum has bent in on itself. It, it's we just don't have any idea of how the time continuum works for nines. You know, they just. <laughs> They off they go, man. Off they go. Well, tell me, Dina Lynn, how have you benefited from it? Well, I, you know, as I was kind of reviewing the book a little bit today, I am. Um, it's it's good to recognize those things in 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 me that are what we might refer to deadly sin or just the mm-hmm. weakness or the shadow part of ourselves and. And I see that and I recognize that. And I really, you know, when I see myself, I see, I can easily distract. So I, I really have to pray. And I, I, I loved a line you had where I, can't, I, won't, I won't be able to recall it exactly, but that it's, you know, in seeing our weakness, our deadly sin, or our dark side, the prayer is that it drives us into the light of grace. And mm-hmm. so... I think I think just being okay with who I am, though I'm always searching for who I am and why I am, that um, I'm okay. I can look at my sin, and especially in in, in the light of God's grace. But mm-hmm. I don't have to just accept it and go. That's just who I am. I I want to grow, and I probably don't work enough at it. 
But I picked up the book and started reading it again today. And I thought this almost feels new to me. But I think Mm. it's because when I first read it, I didn't know anything. And and I just wanted to get to my number. I wanted to know what my number was. Mm -hmm. So now I'm really enjoying um, understanding it in a deeper way, I think. Mm. You know, I love you've said something twice that I find has been very, very helpful already. Um, that um, for for you, you're somebody who really wants to know who you are. That seems to be an ongoing journey for you. And the two numbers on the Enneagram we've discovered that uh, listen to my podcast or involved in tons of stuff that we do are nines and ones. And nines are now are the highest number. More nines than any other type are involved in what we do. And you just help. I understand why ones do because they're all about self-improvement. But I think for nines, it's more of a hunger for self-knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, Uh who am I? Why am I the way I am? And I think that's part of the beauty of nines is that self-curiosity. Right. Uh Uh, Which I wish other numbers had. Right. (laughs) uh, That they were a little bit more curious about the inner workings of their hearts and personalities, right? Yeah. All right, Max, I want to hit you a little bit on three and nine. Let's see if we can erase this. Let's see if we can get this. Go easy on me. Go easy on me. I just just want to say, I think I already know, based on a couple of things (laughs) you've said and uh, the things that Dina Lynn has said. Um, So I'm going to read you. I'm going to just give you two statements, and you tell me which one most sounds like you and i want you to think I about study you, for this i didn't study nope, you don't you don't need to man I'm, i've got you covered here all right this is a yes or no answer pretty much um you you um i want you to think back though and answer these questions through the lens of who you were at 25 okay so just sort of think about now but also gosh was i like that at 25 um because at 25 you had far less self-awareness and you had far less life under your belt, right? You, you know, your personality softens and blurs a little bit with age and suffering and and just life, right? It 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 takes off some of those rough edges that are there when you're 25. Okay, here they are. Two statements. One is, um, I am motivated by a need to succeed, to appear successful, and to avoid failure at all costs. So that's that's the first one. Okay. Second one would be, I have a need to maintain connections with others, uh, to merge with the priorities, the preferences, the opinions, and the viewpoints of another individual or the group, and to avoid conflict at all costs. Mm, I think at age 25, I know I would say yes to number one. Um, there's a yes in number two as well. There's a, it's not as strong, uh, but it would certainly tilt in that direction. Okay. Which, what part of number of that second one did it really sort of kind of resonate with you? When you said uh, merge into that, what was that? A personality or a person? Uh, yeah, you fusing with the groups, opinions, yeah. viewpoints, preferences, all that stuff. Age twenty five, I had a couple of uh, men in my life that I just wherever they went, I would want to go. They were older men, okay. men pastors, 
and they okay. were influencing me and I, I whatever they said yeah. I'm doing. so i think that's common at 25 and then secondly i would not call that merging or fusing i would call identifying with those men and, and probably wanting to imitate their lives yeah right yeah. that's a three that's a very three quality oh is that okay yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, so merging and fu merging and fusing are two. They're close. Merging, fusing, and identifying are close, but but they're nuanced differences. Uh, and because you strongly relate to that first one, it sounds like you're a three. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say, uh, Dina Lynn, to your point, just as a an aside, is that when threes are really, really not doing great. They look like unhealthy nines. However, that's under stress. Mm -hmm. However, when they're doing, they can choose unconsciously or consciously to act like a very healthy nine, which is somebody who has achieved a kind of transcendent peace that all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Mm -hmm. So maybe what you saw was, boy, this is what Max looks like when he's not doing great. Right, he's he just kind of kind of goes to that space, but he's kind of achieved uh, a level of spiritual maturity where, as a three, the drivenness, which can also be driven by you know self-centered stuff, right, has now kind of morphed so that at times he looks like he's at peace in the world. He has a mm -hmm. sense of I belong here, and uh, so anyway. That's all speculation, but I think we have solved the mystery of Max. Yeah, yay. <laughs> the mystery of Max. Yay. Well, it didn't take long. <laughs> I've been working on him for 66 years. You got him in six well, months. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's that, that's why they pay me the big money there, Max. So that's that's what that's uh, that's what I'm about. That's what I'm about. All right. So before I move now, Max, I just want to spend a good amount of time talking about your new book. You were made for this moment, a title that I love. And uh, but I want to just uh, ask Dina Lynn one last question. Okay. Um, do you have any tips or insights about how to use the Enneagram in marriage or in parenting or maybe simply for extending grace to other people? You know, that really is my favorite thing about the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. is that it has helped me understand my children better. And yes. um, I always want to know someone's number because it does open a wide door for grace mm -hmm. to be extended, you know, whether no matter if they're in a, a healthy or an unhealthy space. But when my daughter shared a whole long story, which I won't share, and the end of the story was, well, she's a four. She said, well, mm. I realized I was with two twos. They wanted to stay and close up the wedding and she wanted to leave. But she right. realized, she said, but I'm with two twos and that's what they do. They help. Yes. So I can, I can extend grace to them. And I'm like, wow, yes. there you go. That's, a, yeah. that's a big deal. So I think it, I think it's a great tool for families to understand one another and extend grace to one another. That's a beautiful thing, really. Right. Y'all have three right. daughters, right? So one is a four. What are the other two? Do you know? Yes, one's a nine. And the other, she thinks she might be a four, but I'm pretty sure she's a one. Yes. Uh, well, so yes. Pretty common. It is. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
ones have a very loud inner critic, just yes. a lot of a lot of stream of negative self commentary all the time. Mm -hmm. Fours, I think, have the second loudest inner critic on the Enneagram. Okay. So they can get confused sometimes, okay. you know. Yeah. Um, if she's a four, she has a very large range of emotions. Like she has access to, she has words for emotions you can't believe, right? She has more emotions than Max has in a, in a minute than Max has in a week. Okay. Yes. Before we knew the Enneagram, she was called Drama Mama. So, you know, she's, she, she's definitely a four and she knows she's a four. The other one I'm pretty sure is a one, but like, yeah. That was good for you to share that ones and fours kind of get. Another really good differentiation is, uh, and you could word this better, Ian, but ones will be pursuing perfection and fours pursue the ideal. And it can really yes. look similar, but they're different. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I have very, a very much. Wing, so I, I, I get that little critic mm -hmm. voice and I'll call yeah. it out, you know. Mm -hmm. Nine mo moms who are nines of children who are fours are fantastic. <laughs> I mean, because because yeah. you're you're steady as a rock, and that four is like this. Yeah, you know, is yeah. like they're just emotionally like this, and you're just this kind of like easygoing. It's gonna be all right, you know. And it's like fantastic. <laughs> Great. Okay, Max, I want to talk about your new book now. You were made for this moment. Uh, and uh, we'll probably intersperse it with a little bit more Enneagram talk. But in this book, you you um, examine the uh, the book of Esther, and uh, I, you know not all of our listeners self identify as people of faith. So what I want you to do is just maybe give me a praises, you know, a, a fifty thousand foot flyby of the book of Esther for people before we jump too far into the conversation. It's one of the great dramas in the Bible. Mm. And that's saying a lot, of course, because the great mm -hmm. dramas that have worked their way down through history. Uh, but, but there's nine chapters, a brief book in the Old Testament under the title of Esther. It is set in 5th century B.C. Persia, has four main characters. Uh, one is King Xerxes. I like to say Xerxes. The Hebrew name is Ahasuerus. Sounds like a sneeze. I like to say Xerxes because it has two X's in it. It just sounds yeah, very cool. Really, really <laughs> great to say. He's portrayed in the book of Esther as a more of a drinker than a thinker. He doesn't really do much. He has parties and always has a goblet in his hand. And he has a right-hand man by the name of Haman. Haman. And that sounds like Hangman, which is appropriate because Haman was all about death. Uh, he's he's really a, a Hitler type character, really a serious villain who chooses to annihilate uh, an entire subset in Persia. And that subset happened to be uh, the Jewish people, the Jewish people, three generations uh, into exile from Jerusalem, distant, from, far, far from their homeland. And uh, one of them is a man by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai has worked his way up until he works in the Citadel, which would be the equivalence of working in the Oval Office. He's kept his Jewish identity a secret, which is a huge part of this story. No one knows he's a Jew. 
And no one knows that his niece slash cousin, depending on how you interpret that word, is a Jew as well. But she's a not dead Hollywood beauty. So beautiful that she enters the uh, star search, queen search uh, contest with hundreds of women from all over the province of Persia. And she wins. Now, that includes a night with the king. It includes all types of unspeakable things that a good Jewish girl would not have done. So she has kept her identity under wraps. She becomes queen. Mordecai's in the, in the citadel. And then Haman decides he's just going to annihilate all the Jewish people. And a holocaust is declared. So that's the drama. That's the background. That's the setting for this story. It's, it's powerful. It's, mm. It moves quickly. It's got these four main characters, this amazing crisis uh, that has come the way of the Jewish people. And the real arc of the story is how God gets the people through this crisis. But real quickly, there's the key. God's name is not mentioned in this book. It's one of the Mm -hmm. two books in the Bible. Can you believe a book made its way into the Bible and it doesn't mention God by name, by name? His fingerprints on every page. But when somebody finds themselves in a personal crisis, they can relate to that. They can't find yes. God in their story. And so right. uh, it, I think that's what makes the story of Esther so powerful. Mm. Lynn, just before Ian asks his next question, just to uh, a little subplot, since you nailed, you seem to have nailed Max uh, pretty effectively as a three. What number do you think Esther and Mordecai might be in the story? I know, right? Oh. So... Because someone thought Esther would be a three, but she could also be a nine who's being like obedient or, you know, going, you know, wanting peace for her uh, people. And, um, but she would have to have a strong eight wing, right? (laughs) (laughs) To do that. Yeah. So I heard someone also say that uh, they thought she might be like a counterphobic six or a six who, uh, use the gift of fear to lead to faith and wisdom. Oh, yes, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that. I like we that. Can, we should do a, we, we can do a whole episode on Bible, the characters in the Bible, and the Enneagram. It's, yeah. it's been done. That's a but, great idea. Yeah, that would be fun. That'd be a great idea. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, Max, when I was in seminary, uh, I had a homiletics professor. For those who don't know what that is, it's a professor of preaching, if you will, who summarized the Bible. This was one of those classes. He got real stirred up and he summarized the Bible this way. He said, the Bible is the story of how God gets back what was always his in the first place. Mm -hmm. I like that. That's good. Pretty good. Yeah. 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 I'm preaching on the prodigal son this weekend. That would fit. Oh, yeah. He gets back what? What was always his to begin with, to start with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, in similar fashion, you say that the theme of Esther is the theme of the whole Bible. And, and so just tell me how so. Well, I believe the theme of Esther is that God will turn all injustice on its head. Mm-hmm. This is a massive injustice that's being uh, imposed upon this minority of people in Persia. I mean, they were just minnows in the Persian 
Pacific, right? They were just a small body of people. Mm -hmm. But but because the uh, vice regent decided that the country, the world would be better off without them, and he funded it, he offered to fund it with the equivalent of $20 million. He, he was just a power-hungry, uh, murderous man. Uh, it was an injustice that was imposed on the people. But this story, in the short order, shows how God can take what comes at us as an injustice and turn it on its head and use it to not only protect his people, but really elevate, elevate Esther. She begins as, I think, a little bit of a, uh, a beauty pageant queen. Uh, she, she's beautiful. She doesn't offer a lot to the story. She's not presented much more than the fact that she's beautiful. But midway through the story, she becomes the spiritual leader for her people. Mm -hmm. uh, when she's called and she steps up to the plate, mm -hmm. she says to uh, Mordecai, let's call the people to a fast. And she said, I, I, I'm going to meet with the king. If I perish, I perish. And, and from that mm -hmm. moment on, she becomes a, a spiritual leader uh, for her people. And so a crisis brings the best out of her. And, and she's used in the story by God to save, well, to save her race. So what's so fascinating about that, if we were to look at that story through the lens of the Enneagram, is that actually sounds kind of like she's a nine. And the reason I say that is, is that, you know, we call the deadly sin of the nine sloth, which is more of a spiritual laziness. It's like avoiding conflict, go with the flow, and actually... You know, uh, nines, when they're not doing real well, there's this kind of desire to merge with the wallpaper, just to kind of just kind of get out in the background. But their virtue, which they want to work toward, is called right action. And right action means that some, some moment will come along where the nine realizes something requires them to stand up. And regardless of the conflict or the personal cost, they're going to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the, what we call the vice to virtue transition for nines. Yes, that's, yeah. what, that's what took her from, if I perish, I perish. If I took her from, I don't want to perish, to right. if I perish, I perish. Mm -hmm. yeah. Boom. Yeah. Totally. Now, here's a question I have for you. Because we have this this phrase, uh, the present moment in, in the, the book title. And uh, I wanted to ask you, what is the present moment, Max? Like we're made for this present moment. So as I think about the world that we live in, how would you characterize the present moment we're made for? The famous words that Mordecai gave Esther, who knows but that you were placed here for such a time as this. Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, right at the heart of the story, he says, relief and deliverance will come. Mm -hmm. So he's had some type of spiritual awakening himself which would be an interesting conversation. How did that happen? He goes from mm -hmm. hiding his faith to being public with his faith. Mm -hmm. And then confident with his faith, he says, relief and deliverance will come. And, and God will rescue his people. The question is not, Esther, will God rescue his people? The question is, do you want to be a part of the rescue? Um, mm -hmm. and, and who knows, but you, you have been placed here for such a time as this. There's, there's a scripture in the New Testament that talks about how God has placed each of us according to his plan in a certain generation and even a certain region. And to me, I find that to be a wonderful thought, that, mm. that there's a sovereign hand 
behind uh, the generation in which I was born and the location in which I served. Mm -hmm. That's part of it. So I can look around and I can say, okay, what's happening in the world right now? Could be that God has something uh, prepared within me that I can pour into this moment, uh, whether it be a global crisis or a personal challenge, and that Mm -hmm. uh, God will help meet me and lead me and use me in this hour. Wow. So I have a, a dear friend. His name is Bill Haslam. He was the, uh, I don't know if you know, Bill, he was the governor of Tennessee for two terms. And uh, he's a, a very dear friend. And, and uh, he wrote a book recently, not sure if you've read it yet, called Faithful Presence. And it's all about um, how Christians in this riven world and country that we live in can be a faithful presence. And so there's a little bit of overlap with what you say. And so I just, I put that out as a, a little, uh, uh, you know, blurb for, for, for that book, because it, it, it really is a, a worthwhile read. And on that note, you know, we've, we've lived in a season now of really unparalleled difficulty, right? Uh, in, in the last few years, we've had COVID, we've had George Floyd, we've had civil unrest, we've had uh, a country political profound, chaos. Yeah. oh, political chaos, uh, we've had contested elections, assaults on the White House, I mean, you know, just, you know, um, uh, you know crazy, crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. What are some of the injustices you see in our society today that present people of faith with an opportunity to announce God's justice? Mm-hmm. Hmm. You want to tackle that one? Well, I would love to see God's church stand up on behalf of the injustices. I would love Hmm. to see the church stand up loudly. I don't think we have any right to defend ourselves. I think all we can do is confess and repent. And I would like to see more of that. I think God's really highlighting stuff that is going on in the church and he's wanting to bring us to a place of healing and that's going to require repentance that will bring reconciliation that will bring a lot of his grace. And um, Mm. it's been a rough few years, I would say, but, um, but He's faithful, and he'll do it, and and he'll do it in surprising ways too. Mm. But that's a that's a yeah, that's a wonderful answer. And in fact, I haven't had a chance to read it, but I believe Max that you wrote a prayer of repentance for racism. Is that right? I just happened to poke around. Just tell me a little bit about the story. Yeah, that I'm just no. curious. Yeah, keep in mind. Yeah, thanks for letting me tell about that. In keeping in mind the context of when I wrote the book. It was in spring of 2020, and the world had just shut down. Uh, I'm a retired, semi-retired pastor, but I still preach 20 times a year at our church. And I was in the preaching rotation. And the plan was for me to preach a sermon series on stewardship, always the most popular sermon series, right? (laughs) I call it the Sermon on the Amount. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's, That's great. Well, we all remember what the world was like in February of 2020 in March. I mean, it was just like a cloud settled over us. And I told the staff, I said, no, that'd be tone deaf to talk about stewardship right now. And so I said, let's let's work our way through the book of Esther, because Mm. 
it is a global calamity. It's a crisis. Uh, and, and we began studying through Esther, and it seemed to, to, to really resonate. So yeah. I was studying through that, talking through that, and then George Floyd happened. And as Deanlin and I were trying to pray through our response to George Floyd, I, and I say this kind of, I don't, I don't I only say this when I really mean it. Yeah, it's terrible you have to qualify a statement like that. But, but I really felt the Lord say, uh, listen 20 times more than you speak. Mm-hmm. And there was a group of African-American, a uh, group of black pastors who were meeting on Fridays, and they let me come to their meeting. And I just listened in the midst of all this. This would be in June of 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was heated. It was emotional. It was fiery. Uh, they were angry. And and uh, I, I, I received more than 20 uh, conversations out of that. But the turning point for me was a, a dear friend, uh, an African-American pastor, who described to me what it's like to be a fifth grader in a history, to be a fifth grader in elementary and see a history book and open it up to the picture of the slave and see the whip scars of whips on his back and know that everyone else in the class who is in his case was primarily white sees that as history and then he said i saw that and i saw that as personal story mm-hmm. and that 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 changed me it, it just really mm-hmm. rocked my world fast forward about a month and we had we were having city a citywide prayer service in a large parking lot and uh, he and I were a part of it. And we were praying, what should we be praying about? It was a citywide prayer service, park and pray kind of thing. And I felt like we were supposed to pray for repentance uh, to the sin of racism. And so uh, I, I crafted a prayer asking the Lord to forgive me for being blind to that. And I know I still have a lot of blind spots in that area, but help me to see uh see what my brothers and sisters have gone through that fit well in the Esther story, because when Esther uh, realized the crisis that they were about to face, she called the whole Jewish people to three days of prayer and fasting, no food, no water. I mean, it was a severe fast for the whole people. And I know we make a big deal about beautiful Esther appearing before the king uh, in courage. But I think the real turning point is Esther on her face in prayer, uh, pleading for help. And and, mm. and so that was the, how that story fit into the story of Esther. Well, I love how, you, how you've integrated contemporary history in the moment, the present moment, uh, with Scripture. Because I think a lot of times people distantiate, right? They, 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 they tend to separate the two, right? Uh, rather than trying to see how the larger story of God integrates with the, the story of the present moment, mm-hmm. right? Uh, creates people who just give intellectual assent to a bunch of Bible stories or ideas, theological principles, without them finding their, their way into the warp and woof of their person, mm-hmm. right? Which is what I think we, we want to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So, 
uh, Dina Lynn, I have a question for you about the book. I, um, I'm sure you've read it in multiple iterations. If you're like my wife, although Max has written a lot of books, because maybe at this point you're just meeting each of them with a universal yawn. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Yeah, he yeah, preaches it first. Uh, you experience it as he's writing. Yeah. yeah he right. preaches it to the church. So I, I hear it. Yes. So tell me for you one thing about the book that was perhaps moving or deeply affecting or uh, just enriched your self-understanding and your understanding of the world? Well, I, I don't know if I can recall a certain thing, but I do, I, I was struck when Max um, brought, brought a sermon of, um, was it End Times? Yeah, yeah. He, he brought a sermon from Esther on end times, which I'm a little curious about these days with lots of stuff going on. And um, it, it just struck me that, you know, not only is God timeless and unchangeable, but like there's just threads through his word, you know, that um, that make it constant. and um, I was just, I'm like, wow, I've never seen Revelation in Esther, but it. Yeah, yeah. Esther is, is great because it subdivides so easily. Confusion, conquest, uh, I'm sorry, conf confusion, uh, conflict, conquest. Those are the, the three divisions. And so what we're talking about is I thought I'm going to back away and show how this, this is God's story. There's confusion mm -hmm. ever since the Garden of Garden of Eden. Uh, there's conflict uh, everywhere, but the promise is eventual conquest, conquest over evil, not conquest of the weak, but conquest of God over the evil in the world. And I think the story invites us to back away and see the big picture. Mm. You know, I love, and, and this would be maybe a conversation we can have uh, in a, a year from now, I have a, a new book coming out this year in December, and it's called The Story of You. Mm. And um, the reason I love it is what you're saying is because numerous times in this conversation, you've, uh, I think, appealed to the language of narrative and the idea of story. And of course, story doesn't mean fiction, right? It, it, because that's, that's, you know, I think people say, well, don't talk about the Bible as story. It's like, well, it doesn't mean fiction. It, it, but, but when we think about scripture narratively, I think it so helps us because we think of our own lives through the lens of narrative. Yeah. And how do these, the, I like to call it the larger story of God. And how do our smaller stories, our individual stories, uh, fit in to the larger story of God? Um, and, um, so I'm, again, I'm, I'm just thrilled whenever I hear the, you talk, say the word story and characters, four characters in this story, right? I love, I love the idea too, that, you know, the Bible is a story in five acts, like a Shakespeare play, you know, it's a five act story. And, and so, you know, we, that's a conversation we can have at a, at a, at another date. But again, I just, I'm, kind of makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck whenever you start to talk in those terms. Um, just two quick questions more. Tina Lynn, um, this is, I almost hesitate to ask the question because I don't want to trivialize what's happening in the present moment. But 
Do you think there's any wisdom in the Enneagram that can help us navigate the present moment that we're in? Oh, my goodness. Yes. I mean, yes, I, I do. I think there's a lot. I mean, so for me, the um, greatest thing is it, it, it helps you understand yourself, but it also helps you understand your neighbor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that Jesus said, you know, the greatest things is for us to love him, but then to love and to love our neighbor. And so we would be much more loving people if we could understand ourselves and take that seriously and then um, try to understand our neighbor and love them. We would, mm-hmm. would bring about more peace in this world and less conflict and man, everybody <laughs> just turn on the news. You're like, Oh, yeah. everybody needs some wisdom and understanding and some grace yes. and, yeah, so I do. I feel like it has a lot to offer the world, and I hope more people will take advantage of of your works and and others to try to understand themselves and their neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a word picture, and if you like it, Great. you're welcome to have it. Perfect. <laughs> so you go to the airport. You're standing watching all the bags come off the carousel. You don't just reach down and grab them as they come out. You don't line up and everybody just take the next one and go home and try to live out, right? You stand there and you wait until you have the bag that you know was packed with you in mind and with your trip, your journey in mind. Mm-hmm. And so I think if we uh, dismiss the truth of the Enneagram, the uniqueness of our personality, the story of you, it's kind of like we're all coming off the plane. We go up and we just grab, okay, I'll, I'm next in line. I'm going to grab that one. And we get home and we open it up and it's got high heels in it or it's got catcher's mitt in it or it's got, I don't know, a tuxedo in it. And it doesn't fit us at all, but we force ourselves to try to, to live out of it rather than acknowledge that not every bag packed is my bag. And mm. that's, a, that's grace when I acknowledge that people in the world respond to the pandemic people, my neighbor responds differently than I do because their bag is different than mine. I give mm-hmm. them permission. They give me permission to live out of it uh, in the, in the way that, uh, that we were intended to live. Is, is that yeah. a word, word picture? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I'm going to steal it. You can, you can, you can take the one about the story of God being a, you know, you can, you okay. can take my homiletics professor and I'm going to take that one. Yeah, it's an even yeah. swap. It's an, yeah. it's an even swab. You, you bet. I've never heard the word distantiation. I learned a new word. Yeah, well, that's, a th- that's a, you know, I'm a therapist. So, you know, that's one of those fancy schmancy words that, you know, different, different social sciences make up so people can maintain their jobs. There you go. There you go. I've heard substantiation, distantiation. I'm going to do There you that. go. All right. You just hold on to it, man. Make yourself, I want you to be able to, you know, tap into all that stuff, make yourself look good. That's all I do. All day. That's, <laughs> right. That's what we three do. That's right. So, all right. Uh, you know, I am, um, this is a variation on a previous question. We can wrap with this one. Um, there's a, you've probably read some of them, but perhaps the foremost professor of comparative religion in the 20th century was a guy named Houston Smith. And uh, he taught, you know, at Syracuse, you talk, you know, any number of universities uh, taught for 70 years. Okay. And uh, he was working with someone on a, on a memoir uh, at the end of his life, maybe a year or two before he died. 
And the, the biography asked him the question, how would you summarize? And by the way, he's a self-identified Christian. And he's, they, you know, son of Christian, uh, China, missionaries in China as a boy growing up. And someone asked him the question, uh, how, based on everything you've learned, in one sentence, how would you summarize the faith? And he said, we're in good hands. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay, now I'm going to put you on the spot, man. You're 90. <laughs> I see where you're going you know. with this. No, no, this is no distanciation allowed. <laughs> no, sir. No, no, no. I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. How would you answer if someone asked you to summarize the message of, of the faith or of the Bible uh, in I'll give you two sentences if necessary, but one pithy sentence would give you a hundred, would give you a, a score of a hundred. Mm. He's good at that. Oh man. The, but my, what keeps coming to my mind and I'm going blank on the other story similar to this, the theologian who reduced all of the Bible down to, he said his most pr- profound truth was Jesus loves me. This I know for the mm-hmm. Bible tells me so. Yes. I'm to remember. Paul Tillich. Yeah. 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 That was Paul that, Tillich. That, that's resonated with me. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Ian, I'm, I'm just, I'm a drunk, uh, led to the Lord, redeemed from a real mess of a life. He gave me a queen of a wife. He's given me, uh, unbelievable opportunities and grace and and i'm I, I just the fact that he loves me and knows me that's everything to me mm. wow well man i don't know if i want this conversation to end frankly because it, it's been it's really been so so rich and i just want to encourage everybody mm-hmm. to get max's new book you were made for this moment it's only recently dropped okay uh i think a few days ago and uh so I want you to go and get the book. You were made for this moment. It's an examination of the book of Esther and its application to the present moment and our role in the story of God, mm-hmm. right? That's our role in the story of God and, and how we can uh, help advance, Max, if I can put it this way, advance God's program of redemption for the world. That's perfect. Yeah. right? And uh, so again, uh, you were made for this moment, Max and Dina Lynn. Can we get together and be? I feel like we could be good friends. Let's yeah. do it. Let's do it. That'd be fun. In person, no more Zoom. No more Zoom. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, man. Typology listeners, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. And may you have rest. Until next time.